two before the one. Wisdom is water, I'm the daughter of the cannon fodder. Applied knowledge and insight, a born scholar. Look like a martyr to marauders like Tartar. Wise out slaughter, whack MCs, order a plotter. Original woman, decipher the womb. Crown of creation, fruit of the planet, earth and the moon. Peace, peace, peace. Welcome to another episode of Wise the Dome. Um, today I have a very special guest. We're gonna. You've seen him on Sodnetter and a few other uh, uh, platforms. Um, we're gonna get into some heavy topics. Um, I definitely appreciate the time, brother Kahani. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. You oh, no. know, I never thought, um, you know, that I would ever, you know, be on your show, and I think that this is an honor, like, man, because you know, your channel, you keep it like, especially with your interview, you interview a whole lot of great social activists and i you know really appreciate that that man. you've given me you know your platform so me you chat it up wow man I, I really appreciate that man i do i do um and thank you um and so uh how did you uh become interested in uh you know pan-africanism and uh you know the political movements of african people in the diaspora okay uh, the first thing, you're probably going to laugh at this, but I got into Pan-Africanism rather organically. Mm-hmm. And let me go into that. Um, I used to be an avid um, reader yeah. of uh, Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And Wikipedia had a section where um, they said movies that were narrated by a deceased character. Mm-hmm. And then the movie Lumumba by uh, Raul Peck had came mm. up and the then I read Peck. the Wikipedia right. Mm-hmm. I read the Wikipedia on that and then I looked up Patrice Lumumba and I saw the movie and then I was like, wait a minute. It seems that the African American freedom struggle was at the same time of the Africans um anti colonial struggle. Mm. So when I found that out I was like you know, I didn't know what to call Pan-Africanism, but I was like, you know what? We all in this together, you know, just by watching that movie. So. Mm. Right, right. And then and whenever you begin to uh, study it more and you see, like, the relationship uh, people like uh, Martin and Krumah had and Malcolm going uh, in 64, you know, to Africa and building with uh, a lot of different world leaders and Kwame Ture, uh, going to Africa. Um, once you began to read these things, how did it like personally affect you and how you see the movement overall? Okay, I'm going. I can go into that as well. Um, I I would say that I got my political education when I had went to uh, college. I'm not gonna say what institution I'm still in right now just for protection, Mm -hmm. but my ex-girlfriend, when I was a a sophomore in high school, she had uh, told me that, you know, Kuhani, my professors right now, would love you Mm -hmm. because you're very, you know, brilliant, very smart or whatever. And um, she told me about this particular professor that shall remain nameless, but I, I'll tell you, you know, I, I'll tell you who he is. Um, mm-hmm. He, um, she said, you know, when you go to this HBCU, um, you know, um, go and talk to him. And I graduated from high school 
And he was like literally the first person that I seeked out. And I was like, Dr. So-and-so, you're, my ex-girlfriend told me about you. You know, um, you should, uh, you know, what, when's your office hours? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, at first, um, he was a little bit apprehensive. Like, he told me recently, he was like, man, you know, I thought you was a cop at first. You <laughs> <up> like that. <laughs> and so he wanded up giving me um, a reading list. Mm. Because wow. he, he was like, boy, read this. The first book he had me read had me read was um Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, mm. and then Black Skin, White Mask. And then once I was done with Fanon, um Fanon, you know, had taught me that, you know, um that you know, everything in the Wretched of the Earth, you know, that's what our people do. Right. You know. And then he had me read uh, C.L.R. James, The Black mm. Jacksons and the History of Pan-African Revolt. Mm-hmm. And then he had me read The Bread Book. Mm. And so then he had me read a book that I'm pretty sure you could grab it, mm-hmm. but it's very rare to find. I have a paperback edition that's like split in half, but mm. it, it, it's still usable. One day I'm going to write it in the computer and mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, try to you know republish it somehow. Mm-hmm. And that book was uh, "Black Activism" by Doctor uh, Robert H. Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And when he had me read the book, I have found out that all the books that he had me read my first year in college was the required reading of the Black Panther Party. Wow! And wow. so me and him got closer, and you know, so. And then also he had me read Marxism-Leninism as well. Mm-hmm. So that gave me the because I, I first started off as the, uh, the 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 pro-black person in middle school and high school had the kente cloth dashiki on, mm-hmm. but then when he had me read Marx, Lenin, Fanon, the Black Panthers, it gave me the rhetoric and it turned me into a diamond mm-hmm. in sense. Indeed, indeed. Um, and so, in your opinion, um, what is you know, what is the role of the arts and culture in advancing Pan Africanism and political movements in general? Because I don't think that gets talked about enough. As sometimes we see, because like you know, you mentioned Raoul Peck, right, and um, who also made um, exterminate all the brutes um that's art um art can radicalize you or it can it can keep your brain dead you know um but in your opinion what is the role of arts and culture in the overall movement um see i would say that it is extremely important mm-hmm. because the artist um and i'm to quote paul robeson um and i'm getting i'm getting this quote from paul robeson speaks his speeches from 1913 to 75. Mm. Uh, Paul Robeson says uh, the artist must take sides. He must el- he must elect to fight for freedom or for slavery. I've made my choice. I've had mm. no I have no alternative. Mm-hmm. And I would say that arts is very important because, um, and I, I'm not I'm going to use this woman as an example, but she's not black at all. Um, you know, like let's say that Cardi B 
mm-hmm. um, was to write songs about police violence, pan-Africanism, etc. More people would be talking about what she wrote about and would be more influenced by what she said than uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. Mm, Maybe right. my ancestors watch over that brother. Right. You know, so it, it's the fact that art is easier to um it's easier to get to the masses and you know a good majority of our people, mm-hmm. you know, due to us being systematically being kicked out of the educational system by, you know, you know who, um it it, it it's easier to get to people. You know, right. use a song or a movie like, you know, I can remember when that um, Black Panther, the first one came out, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was very funny because it had a whole lot of black people who you didn't think that were so-called conscience, mm-hmm. at least were having discussions over mm-hmm. um, Killmonger's Pan-African revolutionaryism. Mm-hmm. And- Tyler's, Dr. King's slash. So it, it's it's easier for people to get to, you know? Yeah, yeah no, that, that's a good example because I do remember when the first one came out and not just that, people were appreciating the expressions of African identity and they were exploring that within themselves. People were having like drum circles outside of the theater. And, and I mean, you know, and I know it's a lot of times it, it got criticized, but I just saw it as um, something that kind of, um, and I guess inspired people for the moment to um, be proud of their African heritage. When it comes to <clears throat> the role of arts and culture, I I know um, who do you think who do you think are some artists that actually inspired with their art um, in our, you know, Black movements for liberation um, historically. Um, Because I think of, you know, people like Bob and and Peter Tosh come to mind. Hmm. You know, I would, you know, since you brought up, you know, their their little partnership, you know, I would argue that, you know, Peter Tosh was a lot more militant than Bob was. I would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with you. <laughs> he, he was a lot more militant. Um, I would say, like, if I had to choose, like, a favorite, right? Mm-hmm. Mine would be most deaf, even though he's a pro-black. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I liked how he had that song, Mr. N-Word. Right, right, right. Um, Umi Says... You know, there there was a lot of, you know, I was I was born in and that the, and that black store and that black star album. I listened to it the other day, and it's uh, it's classic, man. Top, it's one of my it's one of my top ten favorites of all time. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. My, I, I listen to that. I listen to that a lot. I just it's an extremely black album, man. And the concepts, um, you know, obviously classic stands it stands the test of time um and and i wanted to get into this though <clears throat> you know i know this is someone that you hold in high regard and i do as well um, i use uh, that book um i use both of uh the volumes that paul jr had wrote when i mm-hmm. did my powerpoints for uh dr my 
mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, so and that's what I was gonna say. Um Paul Robeson, man, he's somebody that I don't think uh, especially in well it, actually in in the white community or the black community, I don't think he is um especially in ours though. Um because you know, whenever white people teach black history, it's always something that suits themselves but when it comes to us and talking about who you know our freedom fighters are or uh, thought provokers and people that were in the movement I don't think he gets discussed enough um so I wanted to ask why do you admire Paul Robeson and how has his legacy influenced your own worldview um First things first, I would say that like it didn't this is just my opinion that Paul Robeson, the tallest tree in our forest, was probably um the greatest African American activist I think we've ever produced. Mm. Because um I was talking to um one of my uh professors and I was like asking her about like, you know, black nationalism versus pan-Africanism. Mm-hmm. She said that um, that the thing about when you become a uh, pan African, when, when you look at people like Paul Robeson, you find out that the more that you travel the world and the more you see many different attitudes outside of America, the more your perspective is going to be broadened. Mm. You know, uh, during the 1920s, 30s, 40s and 50s. Uh, Paul Robeson was probably the most famous uh, African-American artist in America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he went into England. Uh, and he said England is where he got his uh, political education. So he, he was able, you know, he was able to see things from a, um, a broader perspective more than members of the NAACP or the Urban League could. Mm. And um, what else? Uh, why did I admire him is, is for two reasons. Number one, you know, he had a very broad perspective. He was able to look at the race problem and the class problem in America with the same breath. Mm. But the uh, second reason is is because he was a, a theatrically trained actor like I was. Wow. Um, yeah. I was a... And he, was, he, was in, he did Othello, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. I was a Shakespearean actor for um, seven years, from mm-hmm. sixth grade all the way up to the time I graduated. Mm-hmm. And I did Othello myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, yeah, me, me and him were very similar in the, the arts, you know, department, but he had a very broad perspective. Um, so we're going to stay on Paul Robeson for a little bit. Um for those who don't know, why was he kicked out of the NAACP? Uh, he was kicked out of the NAACP. Right? And this is just my opinion. Um, when you look at a lot of the slave rebellions, they were thwarted. Um, a lot of these slave rebellions were thwarted by another African. Mm-hmm. And um, this this was, and I'm this is during the 1940s. Um, when I think that he, well, I don't, he was never really a part of the NAACP, but he, he tried to work with them. Right. Um, during the 1940s, 
this was the time period where African American soldiers were being lynched in their uniforms. Mm-hmm. And Paul Robeson and his brilliance had came up with an organization called the American Crusade Against Lynching. Right. And so he wound up saying that uh, he, he he read the riot act to President Truman's um, face. This was an infamous standoff. And and that movement was obviously looked at, and I'm a, I want you to keep going, but that movement was obviously looked at to be a threat to the NAACP's movement by the NAACP, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, American crusade against lynching. And he said that, you know, if the U.S. government isn't going to protect us against Ku Klux Klan terrorism, then we might as well protect ourselves. Right. And so Rory Wilkins, um, and I'm quoting um, Paul Jr. So just in case that people want to be like, oh, he's, you know, I'm quoting Paul Jr. And he said, Rory Wilkins had consciously and deliberately joined the white, the, the right wing by saying, we will loyally fight for this country no matter how many of us they lynch. Mm. And there was an article that was posted in the Crisis magazine called Paul Robeson Lost Shepherd. Where... Which is the NAACP mag- magazine, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. For those, and... I'm just, I just like to make sure the audience, you know, can follow and get those small nuances as well. Okay, that, that, good. That's good. That's good. And it was called uh, Paul Robeson Lost Shepherd, mm-hmm. where basically that article said that Paul Robeson had been duped by the communists and he was a traitor to his own people. And not only did they publish that in the millions, they also published that and they made sure that it went into the African continent. Mm. This is something that's not talked about about Paul too. Like Paul, um, they talk about what he did when he was in England, where he mm. said he got his political education. Now he met the great Cyril R. James, Jojo, uh, Jomo Kenyatta, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, Nandi Azikawe. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never talk about that he was a founding member of the Council on African Affairs mm. that, um, that, that rallied for African liberation. Uh, W.B. Du Bois was also worked with him on that. He was also a founding member. And, you know, from the 1930s all the way up to the 50s. Right. So it's, you know, so they were. Do you think, um, do you think Paul Paul Robeson um, becoming a communist or socialist, I should say, because I'm I'm not sure exactly if he, what brand of leftism he was, um, but do you think that that maybe inspired W.E.B. Du Bois to become a leftist later on in his life, um, seeing that Paul Robinson became a socialist? Um, To be honest, uh, I have, I still need to find um, good literature on mm-hmm. Du Bois that talks about the end of his life. Like, I need to grab that uh, yeah. book by Gerald Horn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do know he died a, a, a Pan-Africanist, and he was also kicked out 
of the yeah. NAACP, an organization that he helped found. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> and he, he also joined the Communist Party at one time, um, towards the end of his life. Um, um and yeah, so I mean just all right, with Paul Robeson, uh, okay, staying with uh, Paul Robeson for a little while. Um so obviously he he was a somewhat of a renaissance man um he did everything <laughs> for those that may not be familiar with paul robeson um can you talk about that as far as how the man was pretty much good at everything he everything he touched okay um see i think the first thing it starts off with his uh, his training from his father, mm -hmm. who was affectionately named Pastor Robeson, and he was a part of the AME Church, AME Zion Church. And you know, in high school, he finds out that he could act. Mm -hmm. In high school, he found that beautiful um, baritone voice that he is known for, and he and even when he goes into college in Rutgers. Um, he is the master debate champion, the only black person at Rutgers. Mm -hmm. um, he then he winds up meeting uh, his wife, um, whom he treated rather terribly. Um, is Londa Good Robeson, mm. and she generally became his manager. She she had him, um, you know, perform in a lot of amateur stage productions. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the Chitlin circuit, mm -hmm. he was forming a great relationship with the first African-American independent movie director, Oscar Michaud. Mm -hmm. And he The great Oscar Michaud, man. Um, yeah. And go ahead. Because uh, uh, I, I, I don't know if people, you said he reformed a relationship with, I don't know if people understand um, how big and just a, and how interesting that is because um as we know birth of a nation came out and it was oscar Mich oscar michelle who began to create movies black men to counteract the racist narrative of the movies that were coming from white society but go ahead yes mm -hmm. he uh i think his response to the film birth of a nation was i think body and soul uh i'm not sure the name but uh i will i'll look it up but you're probably you're more than likely right. Um, Maybe in our gates, it's it's one of those. Let me see. No, I think I said no. Body and Soul was the movie that uh, he actually did with Paul Robeson. Okay. Yeah, and Paul. He was a professional football player as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, uh, Go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I just yeah, just stay on. Uh, I, I just wanted to kind of say, you know, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just think that the linking up with Oscar Michelle, I don't know if I just wanted people to understand how you know important that was for the arts and for the visibility of black men and women within these spaces, especially to counteract the narratives that were coming out um, of 
like you said, things like Breath of a Nation, the Mammy characters, the Sambo characters, the Step and Fetch it characters, and things of that nature. Yeah, that, that he was, I would consider uh, Oscar Michaud kind of the Spike Lee of the silent era. Right, right, right. Right. I, I like that. I like that. <laughs> um what do you what do you see? It's, well, first, the one last question. All right, so NAACP, they a lot of the reasons, in my opinion, they did not accept Paul Robeson, did not want him to be a part of the NAACP, looked at his movements as a threat to their own movement is because they did not want to be associated with communists. Um, what do you think that, what are your thoughts on the NAACP, especially at that time, um, an organization that has had people like Ida B. Wells, Barnett, um, Paul Robeson, w, well, not Paul Robeson, but they shunned Paul Robeson with W.E.B. Du Bois, but uh, out of Wells, out of B. Wells, and and Du Bois end up leaving. Paul Robeson gets shunned. Um, like, what are your thoughts on that organization as a whole, especially during that time period? Um, this is just my opinion. Again, it's hard for me to have an inkling of respect for an organization who, through members of their organization who were part of the left and including their founder, uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, under the bus. I, I can't, you know, they, they were, to, to be honest, you know, um, and Gerald Horn says this, like he said, it seems that during that time period, and, I, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but it seems during that time period that, you know, in order for Black people to get uh, Jim Crow concessions mm-hmm. um you know you need to throw members of your organization under the bus mm-hmm. and when i look at the end results of 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 that so-called compromise i don't really see anything that is useful that came out of that right 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 no i yeah i, I can i definitely understand your position and, and you know when we think about just the three people that are named that were uh associated and then shunned or excommunicated those are some of the three most powerful people in our history you know um in a, of, a, of being in america and that that says a lot you know um and move fast forward into today's time I guess what do you see as some of the key challenges facing uh pan-African movements today and how do you think they can be overcome uh I would say one of the biggest reasons that one of the biggest problems that pan-Africanism is probably going through in terms of a so-called movement is the fact that if you ask some, like, I mean, for real, th- this is my interpretation of Pan-Africanism. Th- th- well, my definition of Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism basically means that you look at one Black person from America and one Black person from Africa as one, mm-hmm. as one people. Mm-hmm. But if we were to really start to study the whole philosophy of Pan-Africanism, 
there's really no blueprint on it politically. So this is why you have people who are on the internet that shall remain nameless, who say things like, um, <clears throat> you know, while the vaccines were happening, Pan-Africanists pan were saying no to the vaccine. Hmm. Right. Like, you, you know, so it, it's, it's Pan-Africanism needs a literal um, needs a uh, literal blueprint. Mm. You know, something how to run like, you know, a government or something. Because I look at like Pan-Africanism the same as socialism mm -hmm. or communism. Because if you read, you know, any of those works by Marx or Lenin, you know, they it's basically, you know, down with the capitalists, but there is no actual structure, you know, within how to actually run a communist state. Hmm. So I think that it is up to people who, you know, um, are pan-Africanists to really come together and formulize a really good literature that is not political philosophy, but it is actually an, um, answers economic and other questions. I understand. Um, great, great answer. Um, and so I know um, you've offline. We've talked about Mao and. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's such a, uh, a, it's a topic that, that can bring out, you know, both sides of the argument as far as people that, uh, see value in, um, you know, his philosophy and others that don't and will appoint to what they say are, you know, atrocities that, were committed um, by him. Um, if how, I guess, how would you reconcile um, admiration that you have for Mao? And I, and obviously, you know, he within like the Panthers read Mao. You know, a lot of um, revolutionaries have read Mao, um, and one of the criticisms that will always come from others is his own record for human rights and other issues, right? So right. I guess my question is, how do you reconcile the admiration for his philosophy with criticisms of his record on human rights? Uh well, first things first, and this is for your audience, um, I think that it needs to be talked about that during the late 60s, um, early 70s, uh, Mao Zedong gave political shelter to uh, W.B. Du Bois when he was in exile. He gave political shelters to members of the Black Panther Party, mm -hmm. and he also gave political shelter to the grandfather of the Black Panther Party, Robert F. Williams. Mm. Um I was listening to an interview that Robert F. Williams had did. Uh, it was on it's on the YouTube channel Transatlantic Productions. Okay. And he was talking about how when he went to China, uh, Mao Zedong would have him uh, talk to uh, the students, um, and he would have Robert tell him 
what black people were going through under, um, as Gerald Horn would say, American apartheid. Mm -hmm. And he said that um, that all of the children would be crying, essentially. Mm. And before he had left, he said there was a Chinese girl that had rose up and said, Robert, when you go home, you go and tell the black sisters, we're going to liberate them. Mm. So, you know, it, it's very, and, and even um, when he was, he would also have him give speeches. And uh, he said the Chinese uh, government people would say to uh, Robert that, you know, you know, like, even though that you're not a communist, we like you more than we do Nikita Khrushchev. <laughs> because, you know, Nikita Khrushchev and um, Mao Zedong was arguing over how communists should be taught, communism should be ran in China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mao just kicked him out and was like, you know what, you don't understand the Chinese people, the soul, mm-hmm. you know. I'm going to run my country the way I see fit. Mm-hmm. And you know, Robert was very, you know, um, respectful, you know. Right. Um, back on Robeson for one second. Um, how do you see his leg- legacy, like, intersecting with broader movements of social justice and, 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 and civil rights in the United States? Okay. I would say that first we would have to look at, and this is just my opinion again, mm-hmm. we would have to look at why was he intersectional with his politics in the first place? Mm-hmm. Remember when I said that England was the place where he got his political education? Right. So this is my speculation. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest reasons why he was so intersectional with his politics was because not only did he go to England where he was able to talk to many of the white liberals of the time period and stuff like that. So he probably thought that, you know, there there are some, uh, you know, as the black community would say, there are some good white people out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also during this time period, uh, he has, um, he has two white mistresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, this first uh, mistress was a white woman who was an actress. Mm-hmm. Her name was uh, Yolanda Jackson. Mm-hmm. And his second mistress was his first Othello um, leading lady, Peggy Ashcroft. Mm-hmm. She was 22 and he was 37 at the time. Mm-hmm. So I think with him being around the uh, white liberals of his time period, I think that's one of the reasons why he was so intersectional with his politics. Like, cause the Welsh um, people even today um, celebrate him for what he did with the uh, Welsh coal miners. What did he do with the Welsh coal miners? Um, what he would do was he would organize concerts mm-hmm. and he would sing uh, the song, Joe Hill. It's a workers protest song. And he would be able to raise uh, funds and he would have freight cars with foods that would come back and give the Welsh protesters provisions from their long journey from walking to Wales to England. Mm. So he's like, you know, one of the heroes down there. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, um, And so what would you, 
as back on Mao, <laughs> um, okay. um, what kind of drew you to Mao in the first place and how has your understanding of his ideas evolved over time? Uh, I would say that I would always um, have a certain amount of respect for him, even though it was from politics. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't he, he, he says in his writings that, you know, he cares about the great China. Mm -hmm. you know which is which is fine i, I don't right, you know, right. have a problem with that mm -hmm. but the fact that he was using black activists and literally gave them political shelter during the time of assassinations and turmoils i think that he kind of needs to be classified as a bit of a friend mm. to black americans mm -hmm. even wrote a speech talking about how we China, we denounce white supremacy and the reactionaries. Mm -hmm. We support the Negro people. We call on, you know, so, and even with his like politics, I would even say that uh, he was, um, he, I think that he is really no different from any other revolution <laughs> throughout history mm -hmm. that had a goal Mm -hmm. and said he was going to accomplish it, accomplish it. Mm -hmm. and you know and he actually accomplished his goal mm -hmm. so right. I mean that's something to really look at like how do I accomplish you know a complete revolution you and, know? Do, and do you think it's hypocritical for let's say America to condemn him with its own violations of human rights against oppressed people in America. Hmm. You know, I would say because I personally do, right? Like okay. regardless to where if it's right or wrong, um, what I, as far as Mao's actions in China, I regardless, right? Um, it's kind of like that interview um uh with uh with uh Farrakhan and and Mr. Wallace, where he was like, you know, where they talked about Nigeria being the most corrupt place on the planet, and he was like, the United States with its with its human viol with with its human rights violations from the and the blood it shed from the time it became a country until now is in no moral authority to condemn anyone, right? Um, that's how I view it. What would what would you say to that? Um, I'm I'm politicking here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, what I would say is, it kind of goes back to that old saying that when you point one finger at someone, there's about five or six pointing back. Right. And right. I can remember that I read an article. It was in the New York Times mm -hmm. where they had one of these uh, United Nations meetings. Mm -hmm. And uh, America was trying to, well, the representatives of America was trying to uh, talk about Iran. Mm -hmm. And uh, one foreign prime minister person said, why are we talking about Iran? Why, why are we talking about Black Lives Matter? Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> that all these other countries know the deal. Mm -hmm. you know, concerning how America allegedly mm -hmm. 
allegedly treats its domestic citizens. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's you know, it's very, very slippery, you know, to get into. But it just yeah. seems that everybody else, like we're we're looking at how you treat your citizens. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I that's. Um, that's a, I'm glad you said that because I think that is why pan-Africanism is probably and 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 the idea of being international with your politics is is why America sees that as one of the biggest threats when Dr. King, you know, was, Going with going to build with Nkrumah and then spoke out against the Vietnam War, and then you had uh, Malcolm uh, going to uh, the Middle East and all over Africa and becoming international. Even the Panthers were international to an extent because they were going to Palestine and places like that. And I feel like you can cause you can bring up you know they expect some. They expect uh, certain groups and demographics to 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 bring some ruckus every now and then domestically, but when you are becoming a part of the international community, and then you and then you have the ear of leaders and movements internationally, then you become a threat because this idea of American exceptionalism has to stay prevalent throughout its citizens and. Being international with your politics when it comes to the fight for oppressed people, that American exceptionalism shows to be only an illusion, right? And that illusion fades and fades extremely quickly. Um, and I, I feel like that's probably one of the reasons why, um, you know, the mainstream doesn't talk about the real Martin. They don't, uh, whenever they talk about Malcolm, it's always about his conflict uh, with the most honorable Elijah Muhammad or him um, allegedly changing his views on white people after he went to Mecca, which is not true. Um, And um, Paul Robeson and uh, all of these people that were international, like even... Ida B. Wells was international. She was going to Europe uh, and speaking to them about the lynching problem that was happening here. Um, And especially at that time, she was considered a huge threat to um, the social order in America due to the fact that she had the ear of everyone. And and then she was obviously a great uh, writer and she had her newspaper in Memphis but saying that to say this, I just think that, you know, um, the more international you go, the more ears you have of the international community, the bigger you threat, the bigger the threat uh, America sees you as. Um, and staying on mouth for a moment, um, what lessons uh, do you think can be learned uh, from Mao's political strategies uh, and tactics uh, both in China and other in other contexts, like even if it was something was applicable to another movement. Um, if you can, like, just talk about some of those lessons that you think that can be that you think can be learned from studying. 
Okay. Is it okay if I uh, answer the international? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Because th this is what I have literally found out recently mm -hmm. about Black people who went international, right? Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is correct. But I'm going to hit you with something fierce that I think the uh, mm -hmm. audience would also like. Mm -hmm. I would say our first prominent that was like state ran um, black organization that was uh, uh, international mm -hmm. was probably the uh, the AME church, right? Mm -hmm. And they were international. Were you, were, are you saying that they were international because of some going to Liberia or in another way? They were Pan-Africans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I know shout out to Rich, yeah Richard Wright and 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 Absalom Jones and the, go ahead uh, were they in the chat no Richard uh, no not not Richard Wright but uh, Richard Allen I'm sorry oh okay the creator of the the creator of the AME Church okay mm -hmm. yeah, shout out to those ancestors we we need them um I would say when I study people of the AME Church and this is something that is very interesting. Uh, none of the people from the AME church, like uh, uh, David Walker, who's my favorite, who wrote uh, the Walker preamble. Appeal. Yep, the appeal. Mm -hmm. Henry Highland Garnett, who would start off all his sermons by saying that the American flag is nothing but a D dirty rag. Mm -hmm. What I noticed is these individuals were not assassinated. Mm -hmm. They weren't. They weren't. And also, you can't uh, forget Henry McNeil Turner. But go ahead. Oh, who wrote books about God being black, which was, yeah, I have, uh, I'll show it to you after we get off. But I, I have it somewhere. But go ahead. Oh. <laughs> so none of these people were assassinated. Right. They may have called the N word, threatened with lynching, but none of these people were assassinated. Now let's fast forward. Mm -hmm. when we at the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, our leaders are getting assassinated left and right. Mm -hmm. Even to go back with Paul, um, you know, Paul was allegedly attracted, he was allegedly had three assassination attempts on his wow. life. Wow. The first time when he was driving from St. Louis all the way up to, I forget which other state he was. Mm -hmm. But he had discovered that when he checked his car, somebody had cut the brakes. Mm. Nobody knows what happened with that. Mm -hmm. Second time, um, he was uh, trying to sing at New York, and there were white supremacists that tried to murder him. Mm -hmm. um, they were trying to bypass the crowd and law enforcement. And when the police had actually stopped the event, they had found three snipers' nests. Wow. Then the third time there was an alleged assassination attempt was when uh, he had a heart attack and uh, he was subject. No, he didn't have a heart attack. Allegedly, he tried to cut his wrist in a Russian bathroom. Hmm. And then they took him to uh, a, uh, a, a hospital where he was treated by, um, by Russian doctors. And uh, another time, he had another, like, alleged psychiatric bout 
where he was taken to England at this uh, hospital called the Priory, mm-hmm. where he was subjected to about 50 to 100 electroshock treatments oh, wow. about two days after he That's was tortured. <laughs> yes. Wow. About two days after he was admitted. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had no psychiatric test or anything like they just put him on there. And his son, Paul Jr., and I'm getting this information from Democracy Now, mm-hmm. where uh, people don't know that his son uh, spoke fluent Russian. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Robeson Sr. felt that his son should be educated in Russia because he didn't want him to go through the perils of Jim Crow. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And when he went there, he had talked to a lot of the, the Russian archivists. Mm-hmm. because Paul was a scholar within his own right. Right. So he asked a lot of the archivists and the government people that were still alive, he said, you know, at this party that my father was at where we found him, like his wrists were bleeding, uh, did you know of any shady practices, any shady people that were there? And they had told him in so many words that, um, <clears throat> that those people that were at that party were not our guys. And so what Paul Jr. speculates is that he was a victim, and I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if this was the case, that he was a victim of MKUltra, mm. and someone at that party slips something like benazine in his drink because like something is going on with it because there's no history right. of mental illness amongst mm-hmm. Robesons at all. Right. Now, one civil rights leader who has a, an alleged history of mental illness is uh, Malcolm's, Malcolm X's family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, well, but, so, and, but, but we can also say that was kind of in, a lot of that was induced by the environment and what they went through. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because during that time period, um, Paul, uh, the CIA had wrote about how um, due to the Freedom of Information Act, they had wrote that uh, in order to expedite his 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 mind from going into further decline, we're going to keep his uh, his passport away from him where he can't travel, mm. and we're going to further subject him to these um, electroshock treatments. Then, if we could go to the Black Panther Party, they were getting assassinated left and right, mm-hmm. and you know what the Black Panthers' catchphrase was. What was it? We're interpreting 400 years of slavery and Jim Crow through the lenses of Marxism-Leninism. Mm. And what you know when you study a lot of the um, Black movements in the 1960s, most of them were communist. Right. So what is going on in the 1960s that's causing the CIA, FBI to crack down on people hard like this is because they were communist. Mm. And um, what tends to what tended to happen during that time period it was the Cold War. They were afraid of uh, communist cells that were being created all around the United States. They even they even accused Dr. King of being a communist. That was the work that that was you know during the Red Scare period. Mm-hmm. So I think you know um, one of the uh, you know biggest reasons was just I, I don't think that the CIA during that time period was interested in what black people were doing. They, 
I think that they were pretty much interested in the fact, and I'm I'm going to get to mouth in a second. Yeah, yeah, no, you're fine. Mm -hmm. They were not interested in what black people were talking about per se, because you know we can prove that with the AME Church, these people were internationalists, but they weren't really assassinated. Mm. But the fact that people like Paul Robeson and even Robert F. Williams, who wasn't a communist, by the way, that he was, you know, a China scholar for Vietnam, they were like, uh uh, we got to shut, you know, we got to shut stuff down. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the question on Mao was uh, what can be learned from his writings? Mm -hmm. um, I think that we should, um, at least if you're a political theorist, I think that. You know, you have to read certain works like that so you could understand certain things. Uh, Mao is very, he's easier to understand. Um, I don't know if I should say this, but it seems like it's easier to understand. Like if you read the Red Book, um, he's writing it in like in, in sayings like kind of similar to fortune cookies. And it's it's not easy, you know, it, it's not hard. Yeah. And we should read it because a lot of our greats read Mao Zedong. And mm. one of my mantras that I always um, like to use from his work is, uh, and I think everyone else could use it, uh, no investigation, no right to speak. Mm. And to investigate the problem is to solve it. Right. So I think we need to be diligent in reading. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if you are really a proponent in human rights, you know, you should read, you shouldn't, because this is what I see on the internet a lot, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people, and you can use this, I, I've coined this myself, I think a lot of people, whether it be people on YouTube or people just on the streets, that they're like what I kind of like to call pedag uh, hegemonic scholars or pedagogy scholars and that means that if i'm talking to somebody about dr king and they bring up everything that um that pbs <laughs> or a documentary would give <laughs> on dr king that let me know that you haven't done your actual research on the man and you're parroting right from someone else right so you know Mao encourages intellectualism um, he encourages, you know, how to interact with your fellow man from a Chinese cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think it'd be good to learn about, get an inkling of Chinese culture, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, I, I think that Mao, I think, you know, he, I think he's still worthy of reading. Right. You know, right. So, so, yeah. so when we look at it now, right. Um, when we look at American news and how it's just a propaganda factory, whether it's left or right, um, but when it comes to certain foreign policy things, they'll they all pretty much sound the same. Um, whenever, whenever America speaks about China, it is never in a positive light, right? Um, when, but that's not necessarily how the outside world views China. Um, um, this is how, I mean, I guess you would have to, you know, do it on a case by case basis, but to look at China as if 
it has no friends and it's and it's it's evil empire um that is coming to take over the world is in a lot of cases um american propaganda um and i'm not saying that china does isn't ambitious right i'm not saying that at all um but do you think like the with the history of mao and what china is today like the way america portrays china like what are you, what are your thoughts what are your thoughts on that like as far as the cuz as you kind of mentioned it it's like i forgot the term that you used for but if you're using pbs talking points <laughs> talk yeah, about dr king or, uh, or or pedagogy scholars right and so if you're using uh, Fox News or MSNBC talking points about China, then you might not really know about China. Why do you think America wants its citizens to view China in this negative light the way it does? Um, I think, you know, it's to keep up the uh, the nationalism that America has, but to speak on China, you know, I, I'm seeing a lot of um, uh, I'm, I'm I'm politicking. I, I'm seeing no, a good. lot of um, yeah. evidence to suggest that China is uh, buying up all types of land in Africa right now, mm-hmm. and it seems like they're moving on a uh, a I basis. Right. I'm saying I to be specific. You know, you you know what I'm you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Yeah. You know, because China in the 1970s is different than China now. China is now. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'm seeing a lot of reports that is kind of making me very, very apprehensive about what they're doing on the mother continent. Yes, me too. And it's like, I'm, I'm very... But I think some some leftists are blinded by the idea of China where they are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm just not willing to give anybody the benefit of the doubt when it comes to Africa. Yeah. It, it, it's because it seems that they're, they're following a certain playbook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems that right. they're following a certain playbook. Yeah. We've seen that before. <laughs> We we have. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you this as well. Um, what do you see? Some because I, I asked you this about Pan Africanism. Um, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges challenges facing facing socialist movements today? And what do you think some of those obstacles are? Okay, this is my thing with socialism, Marxism, Leninism, communism, is that, and I think many people on the left uh, need to grapple with this. Um, And this is just my opinion. Uh, Communism is dead. Mm. Communism is dead because the Soviet Union had collapsed in the 1980s. And we went into this a little bit, but 
during uh, the Soviet Union's inception and they got their show on the road, they organized things called, um, they had a, a part in the government called the Comintern, where their job was to organize communist sales all across the world globally. Mm -hmm. uh, the person whom many people know of that came out of one of those sales was uh, the great Vietnamese revolutionary uh, Ho Chi Minh. Mm -hmm. They literally had a school to where um, you would get a letter and it was called the Communist Toilers of the School of the East, where you would be taught Marxism, Leninism, ideology. And then once you graduated, you would um, go back home and try to make communist sales. And even another person who was of African descent that came out of the common turn was the great, um, he's very underrated uh, black communist by the name of Harry Haywood. Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. Part of the African blood brotherhood. Yep. Um, he was called the black slide because he spoke many uh Eastern European languages. Have you read this? Um, I have the PDF of the actual book. Mm -hmm. okay. That book that you have right there is the book that his wife had edited out and she mm -hmm. took stuff out of it. But oh, did she? Yeah. What'd she take out of it? Um, I haven't read that version because mm -hmm. I haven't um I'm still reading Black Bolshevik. Yeah. That's the mm -hmm. book that you get the PDF on is Black Bolshevik. And um, he comes out of that, too. So, you know, since the Soviet Union is, ooh, 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 I want to bring this up, too. Even when we look at South Africa, if you read Gerald Horn's book, uh, White Supremacy um, Confronted, mm -hmm. he talks about the, really the biggest reason why they had freed Nelson Mandela from political prison was because during that same time period he was um, being taken out of incarceration the Soviet Union are, had already collapsed. And so the ANC, people don't know about this either, that the ANC were communists. And so, you know, they gave them, you know, certain things like, you know, uh, rhetoric, you know, all, all the type of political tools that you need. But since that the Soviet Union collapsed, they were weakened. So they were like, you know what, we're going to give you the, uh, we're going to give you Nelson Mandela. Mm. You know, so and, and to go back to communism, like it's really dead because there you have a bunch of people who claim to be socialist communists, but they're just speaking rhetoric. Hmm. There is no practice that is being put into place anymore. So, I mean, it, it's I mean, you know, I don't take a lot of these people serious because like, you know, I, I say this to people like communism, in my opinion, is good to read. Mm -hmm. because we live in an industrial age and Marx and Engels uh, came up with the inception of communism based on what they had saw from urban England and urban Germany. Right. The world globally is industrialized. It is important to use them as rhetoric, but in terms of like being a threat like they were in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they're not dead anymore. So mm -hmm. You know, it's socialism is just it's rhetoric at this point. Interesting. Uh, you know, there would be a lot of people that push back on that idea. Hmm. I, um, I would just tell them, like, I mean, just look at 
I mean, the Soviet Union is is gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think they, you know, you could get into Cuba and um why why um all of these sanctions have been placed on Cuba to uh, to make it seem as socialism is not a viable option for any nation uh, to uh, adhere to. Um, and uh, I'm looking, there's an article um, that I read the other day. I'm trying to find it here. Um, One second. I mean, I can't I can't find it. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But yeah, I would think that um it ha you have to you have to well the the forward movement of any nation that operates outside of the system of capitalism because capitalism has to be seen as the only way a nation can prosper and maintain itself and its citizens. Um, even during Katrina, um, Cuba offered to send millions of dollars worth worth of supplies to uh, the people of New Orleans and America denied it, right? Because right. they can't be seen as, what do you mean this little communist country island over here? Like how are they even able to do this, right? Like it has to be made to seem as if uh, capitalism is the only way. Um, I do see issues obviously with within the leftist movements um especially in their relation to Europeans sometimes because white leftists often like to deny that race is a factor in any oppression is simply class uh which that is not our experience um but um I, you know, I think that you would get some pushback. I think, I think, just due to the fact that there hasn't been a nation in recent memory that was able to develop with their own agency, an agency over themselves to develop. Because um, look at, I mean, look at Africa's. Um, leaders that were within the independence movements that were um leftists or socialist leaning like they were all assassinated right and then in its place it would they put in um leaders that would do the bidding of the west for profit right sell their own people out and their own resources out well, yeah well, you know um and so you know, I think that's a uh, that's definitely a conversation that we need to continue to have. 
Um, and the the last question I wanted to ask you once again, Brother Kahani, I thank you for coming on. It's been a it's been a dope bill, man. Um, you're very knowledgeable, brother, man. But um, do you see to tie it all in? Okay. Uh, we have had people like Lamumba, like CLR James, like Walter Rodney, like Haywood, um, like Hubert Harrison, um, who were leftists. How do you see now in today's time um, Pan-Africanism and leftist ideology as intersecting ideas? And maybe, you know what, doesn't even have to be in today's time. You can kind of talk about the history and now. Uh, I would say that, and this is what Vladimir Lenin says, because we have to keep this in mind as well. Vladimir Lenin is quoted to have said revolutions and I'm adding this part revolutionaries always come about during the correct uh, objective conditions mm. and so that means the time period mm -hmm. so we have to be very mindful about looking at people who came out of the 1960s, 50s, 40s, 30s because they were you know the common turn was around so they were kind of protected so we need to, well, first things first, like in terms of Pan-Africanism, um, as I stated previously, if you are a believer of Pan-Africanism, I think that what you have to do is that people need to come together and put political minds together and try to actually formulate Pan-Africanism into a legitimate um, political system. Because, you know, if somebody asks me what um, Pan-Africanism is, I just say it just means that Africans all around the world and abroad are the same. But we need more than that. You know, we, we need to be able to have it as a political system. We need to come up with something like, I don't know, the Pan-African Manifesto. Hmm. It's way better written and it has a blueprint better than the Communist Manifesto. Because it causes a lot of confusion. Do you think the that they need to, um, like you know, like how we had the Pan African con Congresses back in the day uh, with Du Bois in them? Um, do you think that our thought leaders in our community um, should begin to have these again with international? With, with Blacks all across the diaspora? I would say that that is going to have to be one of the uh, courses of action if you actually believe in Pan-Africanism, but we need to really patent it. We need to really write it down to where we don't have people that be on you know Twitter that'll be like, you know, what has, this is what Pan-Africanism leads to. Like, we we need to really patent that thing, mm -hmm. patent that political ideology and make it go farther than, you know, what people think it is. So that way, you know, somebody say Pan-Africanism is, nope, we got the book right here. The Pan <laughs> right, right, right. So right. Once we do something like that or the minds of the day, the intellectuals of the day do something like that, then we could move on to Pan-Africanist conferences and we can build actually build and stand on the shoulders of Du Bois, stand mm -hmm. on the shoulders of Paul Robeson, stand on the shoulders of the AME Church, 
stand on the shoulders of CLR James, Walter Rodney. We can be better than they could. I mean, we have all the, the resources. We got phones. You right. know, we got computers. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I know brothers like to look at the twerk videos and everything <laughs> like that. I, I mean, I do too, but you know, <laughs> we, we gotta, we, we, we gotta, we gotta build on what the ancestors made and make sure that we can actually make it into a legitimate ideology. Right. Brother Kahani, uh, thank you, uh, for coming on the show, man. Um, it's definitely been a pleasure to build with you. Uh, if anybody wants to follow you on social media, how can they do so? Um, it is Kuhani Mwad Delifu. Indeed. All right, man. Well, it was good to build with you. I, I look forward to doing it again, man. Peace. You know.